Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Go for a take. This is a remastered version of episode one. I've redone it in 2020 because when I started podcasting, I was still very much learning about sound quality and editing. Looking back, I slightly shudder at how bad the early shows sounded, so I've re-recorded some of them to give new listeners a better experience. Content-wise, they are pretty much the same as originally, with some tweaks for clarity. One of the first things to start with on this podcast is to define who or what is a Victorian. What is meant by the term? Is it just the people and things that lived between Victoria's birth and death? Is it strictly limited to just the period of her reign? Were the Victorians just the people of the United Kingdom? Or were all imperial subjects Victorian? Does the term refer to more than a period? After all, the influence of the British Victorians was felt globally, even in countries that weren't part of the empire. Is it just the people? Or do the art and the artefacts count too? It can be a difficult thing to pin down. This podcast is about the age of the Victorians. It is not the history of Victorian Britain. My brush is a lot broader. Luckily, I'm not alone in this. Some historians have dated the start of the Victorian era as much earlier and ending much later. Historian G. Price, for instance, argues that there wasn't really an industrial revolution or a Victorian age. He argues that we should see the whole of the activity in Britain in the 19th century as a spectrum of continuity. In many ways, this is obviously right. People didn't wake up one day and say, great, the Middle Ages have ended, and I can stop living in a time of religious-based superstition and poverty and move into the Renaissance era of increased religious and artistic freedom combined with improved social conditions. People's experiences are rooted in the individual, but I do think that sometimes there really is a sense of the end of an era and the start of a new one. The Second World War really did draw a hard line between one era and another, as did the Mongol conquests. So, when talking about the Victorians, I think the line we should start with is drawing it at Waterloo. Waterloo seems a convenient bookend to the end of the Enlightenment, and the start of the attitudes really define age of the Victorians. It is easy, for example, to think of the Duke of Wellington as only the man who fought Napoleon at Waterloo, but he was also a Prime Minister shortly before Victoria became Queen and instrumental in her transition to Sovereign, as well as being a key figure in the early Tory party. Some of his political actions would have significant influence on the early Victorian period, especially his immense influence on the Victorian British Army. His organisation of the British Army in the peninsula and at Waterloo set the pattern for the army till well into the 19th century. It was thanks to his conservative military legacy that Britain remained wedded to muzzle-loading muskets, bright red coats and cavalry far past the point where they were militarily useful. Many of the senior Victorian generals and imperial administrators veterans of the Napoleonic Wars, and brought some of their old attitudes with them. Palmerston, Gladstone and Disraeli 
were all born before Waterloo, but became key political figures in Victoria's reign. Besides, Victoria herself was born in 1819, only four years after Waterloo, so I haven't started too early. It does mean we will sweep in the tail end of the Regency and the reign of William IV. I think it is essential in understanding where the spirit of the age really evolved from. There are some other important reasons too. After Waterloo, there was a complex series of negotiations that set up the European order for the next 30 odd years. Without a background of where Europe stood before the settlement and what the settlement was designed to achieve, we won't be able to understand the constant tension between the status quo seeking regimes in Europe and the rising movements for reform, both in the United Kingdom and across Europe, that eventually led to the Year of Revolutions of 1848. There was also a key climate event in 1815, the eruption of Mount Tambora, which had a devastating, far-reaching effect on the world. So strictly speaking, the term Victorian should be used for the UK during the period of Victoria's reign, plus the territories of the Victorian British Empire. Along with this are the art, architecture, science and literature of the Victorian era. But for the purposes of the podcast, when does the age of Victoria really end? Victorians didn't just drop dead with Queen Victoria. A person born in 1899 could claim to be a Victorian and live well into the 20th century. Again, the podcast will treat it as the time when the attitudes really died. Thatcher might have summoned the ghost of Victorian values in her speeches, but she was not the product of the Victorian era. Instead, I believe the Victorian age died when the last great Victorian army, led by the last great Victorian vintage generals, died in the Battle of the Somme in World War I. The great public school system, the emphasis on glory and dying for the country, an empire and the playing fields of Eton really died on that battlefield. Afterwards, the realism of a post-Victorian industrial age ushered in the poetry of the hard-bitten cynics. Now that's fine as far as the podcast goes. It'll give us a lot of time to cover in the episodes. I'm hoping that you'll find that the Victorians packed more into a century than most countries have managed in an entire history. Right then, you can close your eyes and try to imagine what a Victorian looks like to you. Chances are you might see something like Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins, or perhaps you can see Iron Man Robert Downey Jr. as the ultimate Sherlock Holmes. Maybe you can see Mr. Darcy. Perhaps the sad-faced Oliver Twist springs to mind, or the Christmas card-perfect Victorian family round the Christmas tree. Maybe you see the downtrodden miners and workers in the factories in Lancashire. But that just shows what a muddle Victorian imagery actually is. After all, Pride and Prejudice was published in 1813, so you need to banish Mr Darcy from your imagination. He is not actually a Victorian at all, though if he was real, he would have lived into the Victorian era, and his children would have been shaped by his attitudes. Likewise, the Mary Poppins film is set in 1910, and is Edwardian. Perhaps you only have the stereotype of stern-faced, humorless men and women dressed in black, maybe snobbish and sexually repressed. 
these cliches are usually wildly inaccurate and hide a world of vivid colour, one where people broke social barriers, travelled, drank, fought and had lots of sex. Maybe you only see the redcoats and think of only an empire that was either humane and exporting technology and law around the world or an empire that was brutal, repressive, racist and intent on looting. These are shades and reflections of the age. Even the most accurate images only be a snapshot of a time and place. How a person dressed and behaved in 1840 depended very much on where they lived, their social class, wealth and occupation, but also the thousands of hidden individual quirks that make people choose this colour or style over another. A provincial solicitor in 1840 might look rather strange and old-fashioned to his London counterpart in 1895. An American businessman might well have shared similar social attitudes to his London counterpart, and they may have had more in common with each other than the four factory workers they employed, which might hold true in today's world too. People's actions and decisions were influenced by culture, life experience and so much more. The artefacts and the buildings of the Victorians have often outlasted their creators and the originally envisaged lifespan. That means if some building is particularly interesting, I'll probably finish off its story if feasible. What I want to get across to you though is that there really isn't a bright line before this someone or something isn't Victorian and after this it is. History can be categorised and tagged to make it easier to study. The reality was a lot more messy. There was, though, more of a growing recognition during the Victorian era that the country and the world were changing and a new age was underway. People were complex and sometimes irrational. They did terrible things. They also sometimes did amazing ones. So let's start our journey. I thought it might help if we started with a mini-sketch of the UK and Europe in the year 1815. First thing to remember, the UK is different from Britain. Britain is the island containing England, Wales and Scotland. The crowns of England and Scotland merged in 1707 to form Great Britain when the Treaties of Union were ratified by Parliament in the Act of Union in 1707. The United Kingdom was formed in 1801 when the Kingdom of Ireland merged with the Kingdom of Great Britain to form the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. This included the whole of Ireland. It wasn't until after World War I that Ireland seceded from the United Kingdom and the name changed to the United Kingdom of Britain and Northern Ireland. That's right. In our podcast, the United Kingdom will have only been in existence for a very short period of time, but it included the whole of Ireland. The Victorian age was as much a search for a unified national identity as anything else. National identity politics in the UK was, and still is, a complex issue, as the 2016 EU membership referendum shows. I will be talking about Scotland, Wales and Ireland a lot, We will need to bury the myth that Scotland was somehow a conquered country or junior partner in things and that any sins of empire 
were uniquely English. Scots were a huge, integral part of the Victorian age and the empire, so I won't treat them as a Scotcast special because they are too central to the story, as are the Irish and the Welsh. For those listeners who aren't familiar with the UK, it is worth a quick look at a map. It can best be described as a small, semi-boot-shaped blob with a smaller blob on one side, just north of France and what is now Belgium. The south coast of Britain touches what the English refer to as the English Channel. This stretch of sea separates the UK from Europe, both physically and mentally. It also provides the main sea route from the north coast of Europe to the Atlantic. A ship from the Baltic states, Russia and central North Europe and the Low Countries can only access the Atlantic via the Channel or by going up the North Sea and around the top of Scotland and Ireland. This position means that Britain is ideally placed to exercise strategic control over European sea trade, provided she has naval supremacy at the time in question. Remember though, the map that you look at now is very different from what you would have seen in 1815. Some of the great towns and cities of the United Kingdom would have appeared radically different. For example, Newport in Wales was a small town with a population of around a thousand people in 1815. The locals' main occupations were agriculture, salmon fishing at the mouth of the Usk, and work on the wharves, where a few ships put in from time to time. By 1900, canals and Irish immigration had transformed it into one of the largest ports in Wales, with a population of over 67,000 people. Similar transformations would occur across the whole of the UK and Europe. The period from 1815 onwards saw a huge transition from the rural, countryside-based population to an urban-focused one. The position of Ireland next to Britain made Ireland a site of strategic military importance, as it was an easy staging post for an attack on mainland Britain. Ireland had a long, complex and frequently troubled history with Britain and the English. There were many Irish who loathed the English crown and government in particular and blamed them for local exploitation by Anglo-Irish landowners. There was also exploitation by absentee Scottish landlords. There were also many Irish who were passionately pro-British, whilst others were uninterested in politics and focused on day-to-day practicalities of finding work. Without the Irish, Welsh and Scots, the United Kingdom could not have emerged as a world-dominating force that it did. The Low Countries, just across the water, would be a key strategic concern for successive British governments. Napoleon deemed Antwerp, quote, a pistol pointed at the heart of England, end quote. Antwerp had the potential to have a large naval base built by Napoleon to support any invasion. The distance from Antwerp to the south coast in Britain is actually very short, but the British also constantly fretted about naval bases on the northern European shorelines. Since Spain gave Gibraltar to the United Kingdom in perpetuity, the UK has also maintained a strategic grip on the Mediterranean sea routes as well. In the Victorian period, this grip on access to the Atlantic 
and the Mediterranean is key to understanding Britain's growth, her empire and her international relations. Russian access to the eastern Mediterranean was one of the key causes of the Crimean War, for example. In many ways, you will come to see how the Victorians in Britain were defined by the geography and constraints of being the premier naval power. The position of Britain outside Europe raised a paradox. On the one hand, the nature of being an island made the prospect of invasion unlikely and allowed the British to maintain a small standing army relatively free from the risk of invasion. But this depended utterly on the British maintaining complete control of the home waters if an enemy, or worse still, a coalition of enemies, could seize control of the home waters or if the British allowed their fleet to weaken and decay as they did during the Anglo-Dutch Wars, then the protective seas around Britain would become highways for the enemy. It would give the enemies almost unlimited freedom to choose when and where to attack. With impunity, Britain simply couldn't compete with the European coalitions in terms of manpower, especially if the battles were fought on British soil. Plus, losing control of the seas would mean losing access to overseas trade and the resources of empire. The upshot of this is that for almost the entire Britain post-medieval history, her entire strategic and diplomatic approach was bent on maintaining naval supremacy and preventing any one European power from dominating the balance of power in Europe, or worse, forming a grand coalition against her. It is something to bear in mind when we discuss Perfidious Albion and some of the twists and turns of Victorian diplomacy and international relations. The incessant meddling that Britain often engaged in was actually necessitated by this overarching strategic imperative. Britain is also extremely well placed in terms of climate. Now I know some of you are probably thinking, really? I thought it rained all the time. Well, yes, it rains a lot. I admit I've often had to have an umbrella at my summer barbecue, but honestly, it really doesn't rain all the time. In fact, Britain has a mild Atlantic climate due to the North Atlantic current. Considering how far north Britain actually is, we should have had reindeer pulling sleds full of Anglo-Saxon warriors rather than enjoying a climate that made agriculture and commerce some of the most productive in the world. It is worth bearing in mind that Britain has a wide range of weather and climate. Southern England is probably the warmest and driest part of Britain. Overall, the UK has an immense variety of weather, depending on location, local geography, and the influence of the Atlantic, Arctic, or European weather fronts. To my astonishment, when I was researching this podcast, I found that the UK has the highest number of tornadoes relative to its land area of any country in the world. On December 28th, 1879, for instance, a tornado derailed a passenger train from the Tay Bridge, causing it to plunge into the Tay Estuary, killing 74 people. We will also have to account for the fact that the British climate has changed dramatically over time. Britain, like much of Europe, was still coming out of what was known as the Little Ice Age, 
which was lasting until around the 1850s. That meant that food production was heavily impacted by a changing climate. Some of those picture postcard white Victorian Christmases you might have pictured earlier could well have been the result of the ending of the Little Ice Age. Rapid industrialization was also beginning to increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, kick-starting the process of man-made global warming. England has a wide range of environments, from chalk grasslands to rolling farmlands to woodland to the more valleyed southwest, down to the moors and bogs of Dartmoor and the rough Cornish coast. The north of the country also has excellent farmland, more valleys and gorges, a rougher climate, with certain areas more prone to storms. The centre of the country has a spine of mountains running up it, and no part of England is actually very far from the sea. Wales and Scotland have their own unique climate and geography. We will look more at the Scottish climate and geography during the Highland Clearances and their Great Famine. We will also look at the climate and geography of Ireland in more detail when we get to what is known as the Potato Famine or the Great Famine in Ireland. At the beginning of our period, the climate and geography had much more of a day-to-day impact than it does today. The fastest methods of travel were the horse or a boat. The main forms of power were human muscle, the horse, ox or watermill. Troop movement especially remained tied to the rate of march of the infantry and was a little different from Roman times. The bulk of jobs were done by human labour with water mills and windmills being a useful supplement for key tasks, especially grinding corn and wheat. The principal occupations were agrarian. There were some towns beginning to industrialise and there were hints of the steam-driven economy emerging. The consumer market barely existed. Most, but not all, shops were local, although Wedgwood, China, was beginning to create an international mass market. Britain could clearly be seen as the start of its industrial revolution. Heavy goods were still moved by horse, cart, barge or ship. The fastest messages were still sent by fast horse or by semaphore. There has been some historical debate about whether messages were flashed by a heliograph, but I can't find an accepted, verified use of this method of communication before the invention of the Mance heliograph in 1869 by Sir Henry Christopher Mance. Clothes were mainly from natural sources and were not well waterproofed. Staying warm and dry was a key challenge in northern climates, especially at sea. Staying cool in warmer climates was difficult without modern cooling clothes, air conditioning and plentiful water. Added to this, the fact that clothing was very fashion dependent and for the poor, heavily price constrained, the lack of suitable clothing could be lethal in some circumstances, not just on difficult expeditions. Even in day-to-day life, this was the world of 1815. It was rooted in the local. It was mostly agrarian. The Industrial Revolution in Britain was underway, but some towns like Manchester were noticing the first massive changes of industrialisation and expansion. Life in some rural communities 
was little changed since the Renaissance, with traditions that might have stretched back to the Middle Ages. Disease was rampant. Cholera hadn't yet reached Europe. By 1817, the first great pandemic would break out in India. Other great killers, like tuberculosis, smallpox, typhus and dysentery, ravaged Europe. Medical science was still exceptionally primitive. Death could strike quickly, and the reaper extracted a huge toll. To live in 1815 was to live in an age which was at its heart little advanced from previous centuries. Superstition was still rampant, and Europe was not as far ahead in terms of technology from many of its neighbours overseas. Across Europe, the accepted form of government was the hereditary monarchy. The only real exception was revolutionary France, which challenged the old order. By the end of the Victorian age, Western nations had been completely transformed. Public health measures, germ theory, mass vaccinations, plumbing, rubber, electricity and refrigeration fundamentally changed the world. Death rates dropped and populations had vastly swollen. In 1800, a fifth of the world's population lived in Europe. By 1914, it was a third. These staggering demographic pressures would shape the Victorian age, forcing mass migrations. When combined with increased technological development and production, imperial expansionism became almost inevitable. An Englishman or woman from 1815 might have had an easier time understanding Tudor England than he or she would have understanding the world and technologies of 1915. Unlike today, the world of 1815 didn't have a single hyperpower. Instead, there were a number great powers. Great power status for a nation was important. It not only conferred prestige on a nation, but also increased the influence they could exert over other nations during treaty negotiations and trade. Great power status was also considered a mark of civilization. Austria, Russia, Spain and Prussia were all considered great powers in 1815, but really only Britain and France could claim to be international powers as well. The others were essentially regional powers, except what was left of the declining Spanish Empire. The Victorians would go on to make Britain the first truly global superpower. Not until the rise of the United States in the early 20th century was Britain's international superpower status really and truly challenged. I'm going to give us a quick run through Europe as it stood in 1815 in the run-up to Waterloo. I won't go into depth on the background of each nation. It's just to give you an idea of how the main powers of Europe stood. Please remember, though, that nation-states were not the centralised powerhouses they would become in the 20th and 21st century. Nationalism was on the rise, but the worldview of most of the population would be local, and rulers still claimed territory by hereditary right or marriage or treaty, rather than in terms of strictly delineated ground on a map. Also, I'm not going to deal with the smaller nations of Europe in 1815. Firstly, it is too much to cover in a summary. 
And secondly, territories, duchies, vassal states, confederacies and principalities would shift about endlessly. Also, I'm not going to do a summary of the world outside Europe here. We will deal with the United States, Canada, Australia, China, India and many others during the podcast. Our first great power, Spain, was one of the oldest. The high watermark of her empire had long passed, but she remained a powerful and proud nation. She had a long history of civilization, art and exploration. Spain is on the southwest coast of Europe, with Atlantic and Mediterranean seaboards ideally suited for the transatlantic trade routes and the Mediterranean. She was agriculturally rich, but frequently disorganised and corrupt, with entrenched nobility who were ridiculously conservative, even by the standards of the 19th century. Despite her geographical riches, wealth in Spanish society was colossally unequally distributed. The bulk of the population were uneducated, and the country had been ravaged for years of war during the French invasion and the British retreat, then the counter-invasion. Her climate was often harsh, and feeding campaigning armies in the country was difficult. Spain had also suffered a number of naval defeats at the hands of the British, notably at Trafalgar. Their grip on their colonial empire was shaky to say the least, and the country as a whole didn't court modernisation or innovation, leaving them progressively weaker against the rapidly industrialising northern European nations. They had suffered badly politically and culturally in the Napoleonic Wars, and regional identities were strongly held, making political unity difficult. Spanish colonies in Latin America were able to push back hard against a fragile Spain, and the USA was often keen to provide an extra nudge to get rid of the Spanish as the 19th century went on. Austria was France's main enemy during the Napoleonic Wars, along with Britain. It is probably better not to think of Austria at this time as a nation like France or Britain. It was more a collection of political entities that came under the sway of the famous Habsburg dynasty. The Austrian Empire was officially created in 1804, out of the personal holdings of the Holy Roman Emperor Francis II, after defeats against the French. But it obviously included the core Austrian territory itself, along with Bavaria. It was held together mainly by loyalty to the Habsburg kings and Roman Catholicism. The ideals of the French Revolution were in many ways a direct strike against the threads that held the whole thing together. Its shape would be largely determined by one of the great figures of the period of 1815 to 1848, Clement Lothar von Metternich Winberg Bielstein. Fortunately, better known to history as just Metternich, which is what I'll be calling him from here onwards. In 1815, Austria was still at the height of its power, with territories in Italy, Poland and the Balkans. It had suffered serious defeats at the hands of Napoleon, but thanks to Metternich, would emerge into the post-Napoleonic world even stronger and larger. It was a conservative, reactionary entity that would come into conflict with the emerging powers of Germany and Italy. We will revisit it more than once during the podcast as it undergoes revolutions and wars against Prussia, setting the stage 
of the mighty Austro-Hungarian Empire. To the east was the mighty Russian Empire. Russia particularly craved international esteem. She was constantly torn between much-needed internal reform and lurches to autocracy. Initially friendly to France, Russia would eventually become a key part of the coalition against her and was instrumental in the campaigns against Napoleon in 1813 and 1814. Russia's claim to great power status was fragile throughout the Victorian age. Her self-confidence was sometimes brittle and she remained only superficially modern despite the vast extent of her empire. After Napoleon's defeat, the other Western powers pulled well away from Russia in terms of industrial power, economic performance and social liberalism. The failure to introduce liberal forms of government made Russia's claim to great power status precarious in the eyes of the rest of Europe. Military power alone was not enough to confer such status. Russia was powerful enough to greatly concern the Victorian British, especially in the eastern Mediterranean, the Balkans and Afghanistan. The great military power of the age was supposed to be Prussia. Before we start, can we please, please get the idea that Prussia and Germany are the same thing out of our heads? Prussian and German unification would come about in the later 19th century and Bismarck would use his immense genius to reshape them into a unified and coherent identity, but they weren't the same. Also, there seems to be a tendency in modern culture and films to read Nazi influences and designs into early Prussia and Germany. But that's getting it backwards. Please don't do it. Seriously, Nazi Germany borrowed images, themes and music from their past like magpies. If you see symbols you think of as Nazi in the 19th century Prussian and German culture, they weren't. They were symbols that would later be stolen by the Nazis. Films are especially keen on presenting pre-war Germany as somehow already being Nazi, when actually filmmakers are being anachronistic. The Prussians of 1815 were the creation of the Frederick Kings and the infamous Frederick the Great. So successful were Frederick the Great's military achievements that in the early days of the French Revolution, it was assumed that the Prussian army would sweep into France and stamp it out for good. Napoleon shocked the world by his constant humbling of Austria and Prussia. The main event of 1815, of course, at least as far as Anglo-centric history is concerned, was Waterloo, that great British legend of the Iron Duke and the stiff upper lips beating the evil military pint-sized tin pot dictator Napoleon. The charge of the greys, the squares standing firm, and the unflappable Wellington yelling up guards and atom. The reality is very different from the legend, and it is actually deeply misleading. And the Victorians had a very large part in shaping this legend. Their attitude to Waterloo, the myths, and the artwork they produced has produced this lasting and deeply misleading understanding of Waterloo, even to this day. I hope you'll join me next time as we explore more about the Waterloo campaign and begin separating facts from legend. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, 
I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. And the show also has a Facebook page and group. Just search for The Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It takes less time than making a cup of coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes. Or you can go to patreon.com and search for The Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.